Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is David, and you are jumping into lecture four in our course we're running on theology and culture. So, quick caveat. These lectures are being produced for a discussion-based course at our church and then made available here for anyone to listen to. So if you're jumping in in the middle, I highly recommend you going back and starting from lecture one. So today's lecture, we're going to be diving into some philosophy, exploring the topic of epistemology, which I've already kind of introduced. But really simply, it it is an exploration of anthropology, asking questions about what it means to be human. How do our brains and bodies and and our souls engage with the world and gather information about it. So just another warning here, today's going to get a little dense and heady. I would really recommend either you take notes or you just sit back, relax, and enjoy the fact that you don't need to remember everything I discuss. So my hope for you as we leave this lecture today will be that you have a renewed sense of wonder and beauty that although truth may be stranger than it seems or stranger than you thought, we can still trust in the the sufficiency of our knowledge to guide us through life. And second, I hope that this lecture will give us all a healthy dose of humility, that our knowledge is always partial, and so we need to remain open and teachable in all areas. So with that, opening, I'm just going to say a quick prayer. Father, um, as we engage our minds today, as I engage my my thoughts and studies and notes, um, I pray that you'd guide me, guide my words, you'd help me stay on track and stay clear. And as those who are listening engage, I just pray that you'd be more than developing words and vocab and ideas, you'd be pastoring their hearts, that you'd be speaking to them and bringing clarity and insight into real life situations where they've felt tension, struggle, cognitive dissonance. And so, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'd be present in the midst of these dialogues. Amen. So, quick recap, I introduced this term in one of the, I think, lecture two, this term epistemology. But here's kind of a simple summary um, of the situation as Stan Gren saw it. So first off, epistemology, again, is the study of how we know what we know. And so here's Stan's assessment. American Christianity had adapted its understanding of truth to fit the cultural demands of the modern era which lasted from, say, 17th century into the late 20th century. But since the 1970s, the culture had shifted to a degree that new understandings and new, um, call them truth, call them beliefs, but new beliefs about, about knowledge had formed. And many Christians were thus perceiving these cultural shifts as as an onslaught of attack against the truthfulness of their religious beliefs, of their beliefs about Jesus, their beliefs that they've derived from Scripture. And Stan saw this as a completely unnecessary fear 
Instead, he believed that these cultural shifts were actually almost opening up our eyes and our awareness as as people to see a more biblical understanding of truth and how it functions. So I think I said this in one of the first lectures, but he perceived postmodernism in some of its critiques to actually serve as a cleansing agent to help critique the modern assumptions that had kind of blended in with our biblical faith, the faith that has been passed down for thousands of years. So we're going to dive into, um, first off, laying the landscape uh, in the field of epistemology, to which I need to acknowledge at the front end I am, I am no expert in. I'm merely a, a curious pupil, and I'm doing my best here to, to communicate quite complex things, which people spend their whole lives studying and um, engaging. So I'll do my best to give a brief overview of kind of the landscape of epistemology, introduce some terms, and uh, hopefully that will then set the stage for talking about Stan's understanding of biblical truth and what it means to, you know, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the, and the life. So that's our plan today. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy this. So epistemology, first off, the definition of epistemology, it is the branch of philosophy that seeks to understand the nature and justification of human knowledge. I guess further we could say it explores the structures of knowledge, the different components of knowledge, the conditions under which knowledge arises, the sources of knowledge, and even the limitations of knowledge. And uh, in my best attempt to summarize kind of some of the dominant views in epistemology, I'm going to give you guys five categories here that we can kind of think about this. And each of these are rooted in historic movements and specific philosophers and people, uh, and we don't really have time or space to get into all the details of it, so this will be a, a flyby overview, but hopefully it'll give you a, a lay of the land. So... The, the first one we'll talk about are correspondence theories of truth. And in this, in this category, truth is understood to be the simple agreement between words and reality. So, I mean, this, this idea is, first off, it's ancient. We go back to even Aristotle and um, in his work, Metaphysics, he writes, to say of what is that it is, or of what is not, that it is not, is true. Um, in modern life, from our experiences as humans, we all can understand what this means, right? If I, if I make a statement, uh, I get a phone call and I tell my wife, I am sitting at the office, and I am in fact sitting in my office, we would all agree that's a true statement. The words I have spoken correspond to or mirror, they map, the reality that's actually taking place. And it's a very functional, helpful way to think about truth. And in many ways, I think we could say even biblical authors um, seem to assume some level of correspondence between their words and reality. Anyone who's using communication, I think, has to assume some level of correspondence 
or your words are completely meaningless. Um, so for example, like in, in the beginning of Luke's gospel, he explains that he has written this reliable account of the events that have taken place in Luke 1, verse 1 through 4. So there's this basic assumption in correspondence of realism. And realism is a word that's thrown around often in philosophy, and it has kind of two meanings, kind of two levels of realism. The first level of realism is metaphysical realism. This is, um, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound, right? Most of us would say, yes, of course it makes a sound, even if no one's there to hear it. So reality exists apart from our, it is, it is mind independent. Um, and then there's a second layer of realism that human minds can accurately comprehend and explain this reality. This is known as epistemological realism. So in, in some, some schools of thought in correspondence theory, what can happen is this idea of, of correspondence between language and reality can become so simplistic that the, the realism of words and reality are one and the same thing. So there's this kind of well-known uh, movement in philosophy called common sense realism, which we'll circle back to in a minute and talk more about. But common sense realism was uh, kind of rose to prominence by this philosopher named Thomas Reed. He was Scottish and it had a very simplistic understanding of language mapping reality, almost in a one-to-one -one ratio where language was like the uh, one side of the coin and reality was the other. Um, so there's complete overlap between words describing things. Um, and this leads to a phrase I've, I've probably said a couple times that Grenz is critical of what's known as foundationalist uh, thinking and foundationalist approaches to knowledge, which essentially build beliefs or think that beliefs are built off of propositional statements that are objectively true and, um, you know, self-evident to all people universally. So you can see where this correspondence theory of truth and this foundational approach to knowledge um, fit very nicely in the cultural era of modernity. It was this phase of history where humans were were growing in confidence in their rational ability to their they were growing in confidence in their epistemological realism their ability to grasp nature i think i said um oh is it bacon's quote that man's man's purpose is to discover nature's secrets right which the whole scientific revolution was predicated on this this very high optimism that we could in fact do that because um, if we couldn't, then the whole scientific process, the whole scientific method would be kind of a pointless endeavor. So that is correspondence theories of truth. And in day-to-day -day life, Grenz himself even acknowledges that this functionally in our life is kind of how we observe truth to play out. Um, a second category for epistemology is coherentism. So 
coherent if if correspondence theory thinks of truth and beliefs as a tower that linearly builds upward from the most simple on the bottom to the most complex on top or perhaps even a pyramid a bunch of simple beliefs and observable facts on the bottom and then more complexity as you go up coherentism views truth more as a necklace or a spider web it is that it's almost one layer of complexity further saying these truths are not just isolated statements about reality, but these statements, um, these statements almost hang together and they are interconnected and interdependent. So maybe a, a good example I could give of this is Einstein's theory of relativity. So the theory of relativity is not observably obvious to any of us because we live in a frame of motion where in a relative sense, we're not moving that fast. So our perception of three-dimensional space and the passing of time is that they are static, objective, and unchanging. But Einstein, through some creative thought experiments, which are eventually proven empirically later, discovered that actually time and space are relative measurements uh, and they're relative to the speed at which an object is moving. So when you approach extremely high speeds like the speed of light, time and space uh, cease to be objective and constant. And for example, time would, if, if you could hop on a school bus and travel at the speed of light or half the speed of light, you would, uh, the watch on your wrist um, you would perceive it as ticking normally, but someone else in a slower reference frame, uh, their time would actually be passing faster. So there's this kind of famous physics experiment called the twin paradox. If you, uh, you and a sibling are born in the year 2000, and then in 2020, one of you gets on that Miss Frizzle's magic school bus and travels off at the speed of light um, and then returns maybe from the vantage point of the earth, maybe the trip took 10 years, but for the person traveling on the spaceship, traveling at the speed of time, time passed slower because they were moving so quickly and maybe only six years passed for them. So that person comes back and these people who are biological twins are now quite literally in a physiological sense, different ages. Their bodies experience different times during that period. So the one sibling would be 30 years old and the other one would only be 26. So if that sounds crazy to you, um, that's exemplifying my point here of a coherentist view of truth that in order to get to that theory, um, which then eventually was verified through simple correspondence, it took Einstein kind of connecting the dots of all these more complex thoughts. So it is, it is not that truth functions just in these isolated statements, but that it's, it's that truth functions paradigmatically, right? And when Einstein first started talking about this, he was in some ways ostracized from the scientific community because people thought it was um, just, just nonsense. They didn't believe it because their experience didn't verify it. So coherentism, um, this is also kind of seen in... In most academic disciplines, we think of how theories need to, theories can't contradict each other. So 
if you want to, or in the discipline of theology, if you want to say um, God is love, but then you have to have to address pictures of God through the scripture where maybe it appears that God is at least advocating or, or at, at the at a minimum allowing violence to happen. So how do we reconcile that, right? So we can't have incoherent um, thoughts in our individual truth statements. So coherentism is just adding kind of a layer of nuance and complexity to correspondence theories. Third category is pragmatism. And in many ways, this was uh, America's greatest contribution to the field of philosophy. Uh, there was a whole school of thought known as the... these thinkers known as the pragmatists who kind of sought to remove these abstract debates about truth um, and bring it down to the nitty gritty of life. So they would argue that truth is primarily functional or said even simpler, truth is demonstrated by its usefulness in practice, which when I just say that is obviously so American, right? What's true is what works. Um, and so in a in a lay level sense, this is this is probably your average person on the streets. Um, maybe not their understanding of truth, but how they live truth. Right? What works for you works for you, and I'm not going to tell you to do it different if it works for you. On a more uh, cerebral and kind of clinical or, or cognitive side, this is the um, scientific method. This is the whole kind of underlying thought process in academic journals and this idea that as people continue to advance a discipline, they test out theories, they pitch them to the community, they do research projects, they get critiqued, and basically if enough people do that together, the truth will over time emerge. So it's a very empirically based and very pragmatic understanding of truth um, that basically truth will eventually be decided as the opinion about reality that everyone agrees on, um, which is, again, almost taking a step away from or going a step further than correspondence and coherentism because the pragmatic view of truth is almost not super concerned with these philosophical debates about metaphysics and epistemology it's it's just much more concrete and worried about um, what's helping us progress, which again I think most of us can probably relate to in our Western American culture. So now I just want to pause. So those three categories uh, within subdisciplines within the field of epistemology have been some of the dominant schools of thought in the modern era. And as I kind of mentioned and alluded to, you know, there's obviously hints of these views of truth going back all the way to um, Aristotle and the early Greek philosophers. So they're old. And and I think just a couple comments. I mentioned this specific form of correspondence theory called common sense realism. And um, I just want to give two maybe historical markers to help maybe make sense of this and help us discern and become aware of how this this concept of common sense realism is actually very dominant still in in daily life and dominant in a lot of people's approaches to theology in the bible so the first example i'd give is if you think back to the founding fathers and uh 
some of the original documents they're writing, like the Declaration of Independence and uh, the Constitution, right? Uh, I think it's the Declaration of Independence. Uh, I hope I'm not wrong there. But it opens with a line. It says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, most of us, if we grew up in an American context, would hear that and probably shake our fist or shout amen, right? And it's it, But that opening line there, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That is a, a common sense realist statement, right? It is a foundationalist statement that what is about to follow is obvious, undeniable, and universal, which we might actually all agree those are good values, this idea that people have unalienable rights and that those rights include but are not limited to life, liberty, and happiness, or, or life, freedom, and happiness, right? But I would say history would tell us, if we're being more pragmatic here, that those values are anything but self-evident. Um, and even in the context in which this is being written, right, we see that immediately, and there's been a lot of discussion about this lately, that even that phrase, all men are created equal, right, there is so much nuance that's needed because for this statement to make any sense or to actually hold true, we need to understand what that word all or that word men means or that word created or that word equal, right? So really quickly, what at first glance seems um, like a simple correspondence statement, like, yep, we agree, that's true, is actually very complex because when this, the, the historical context when this is being written, that word men is not referring to women and it's certainly not referring to African Americans who were being enslaved in the early colonies. So um, this is just giving an example where in real life, how quickly a correspondence theory is inadequate to fully explain and help us understand how truth functions that it, it, it has no ability to adapt for the complexity and nuance of, of real lived experience in life. Um, another example I would give uh, would be within conservative Christianity. And again, I don't use that word conservative in a derogatory sense or a negative sense, but within Protestant conservative Christianity, that is people who are... Um, trying to find their identity and their their sense of meaning in the world through the God story and the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So the turn of the 20th century, there's a lot of cultural forces. It's kind of the pinnacle of modernity, right? 200 years in the making of the scientific method and this hyper-rationalism. And Christianity in, is swimming in those waters culturally in Europe and in America, and they are feeling pressure, especially those people who are being trained in the academy. They're feeling pressure to try and establish their discipline of biblical studies and the discipline of theology as properly academic in this new modern sense of having an empirical method that's, that's observable, repeatable, right? And having a concept of truth that is correspondent uh, foundational, coherent, and pragmatic, right? So there's a lot of debates here on what I'm about to say, but the, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy in the early 
1900s takes on a level of centrality and importance for conservative Christians that it um, that it at least had not had previously. So, and if you haven't heard of this doctrine, the doctrine of inerrancy basically asserts that the Bible is errorless and factually accurate in everything it says, including scientific inquiry. So, and and some people, this is, you know, some people might nuance or define inerrancy different. They might say the Bible is errorless and factually accurate in matters of faith and life, or the matters in which it intends to communicate itself truthfully about, right? So... And that's where we get into some semantics about words. But but the point still stands. I mean, throughout Christian history, obviously Christians have held to the the utter truthfulness and reliability and authority of the doctrine of Scripture. And we can, we can go read St. Augustine or read Thomas Aquinas, and we can read people throughout church history who, who held Scripture on this high, high level of truthfulness. Um, and, and there's... Some people will argue that this doctrine of inerrancy was invented in the 1920s um, by some Princeton theologians to defend Christianity against scientific rationalism. Others will say that that's complete um, revisionist history and that actually the doctrine of inerrancy goes back to Paul. Um, And I think, again, regardless of maybe where we would land on that debate, the point still stands that at the particular turn of the 20th century, the combination of Christianity's central value for the authority of scripture in a new cultural context that was inherently bent on deconstructing texts and breaking them apart like they were science experiments, that there was this this new level, a, a new sense of almost threat to the one of the core sources of belief for Christians. And so it it led to this heightened need to almost defend itself against the culture. And, um, and essentially what Grenz is stepping into here by drawing on some other, some other added layers of nuance for epistemology is Grenz is concerned that while, while, modernity has now shifted and moved on christianity is still stuck in modernity it's still fighting battles that it doesn't need to be fighting trying to defend itself um almost like boxing with a ghost trying to defend itself against something that is not there so the pressures of the culture in the beginning of the 20th century led to a form of almost a doctrine of scripture that perceived perceived scripture to be cultureless and inerrant and its claims of truth to be obvious and straightforward and universally applicable and universally um, kind of inductively arrived at, right? And this this kind of poses a challenge in a modern, well, a postmodern age now in the 21st century, where there are some new theories of truth circulating through the academy, but also now hitting mainstream culture. So the fourth category of epistemology that we need to now engage with, and this is actually has roots that go very far back to Immanuel Kant, um, but it's really taken, um, become more of a mainstream approach in 
the 21st century. So th there's kind of two words I would use for this fourth category, phenomenology and constructivism. So the former phenomenology is, is a discipline within philosophy that is satisfied to observe and describe the perceptions of what's going on rather than trying to make claims of metaphysical realism. So rather than us assuming that we actually know reality as it is, phenomenology as a discipline just tries to describe and observe um, what is happening. And in the therapy world or group therapy world, it'd be the equivalent of saying, um, you know, the story I'm telling myself is blank. Or when you do that, it makes me feel this. So it's this idea of like, I'm not trying to impose upon you and suggest that this is real, but this is my it's just basically trying to state perceptions. This is my perception and no more. And this traces back to this uh, philosopher, Immanuel Kant, who was the first to kind of create this dualism between uh, the noumena, which is metaphysics, which is reality as it is, and then phenomena. And I don't know if I'm saying that word right. Phenomena. That's where we get the word phenomenon. The phenomena is our human perceptions of the reality or as we perceive reality to be. And he was the first one to kind of s suggest that there was actually a separation or a bifurcation between those two. And now we're hundreds of years later in the postmodern age. And um, those two are kind of like two icebergs. They are moving further and further apart. So the second term constructivism. So this is, this is the idea that language not only describes perceptions, like phenomenology says, um, but it also creates and constructs re the reality that is perceived. So we'll, we'll unpack this a little more, but it, it basically would advocate that language is kind of embodied and transmitted by social communities that share these that basically share and then construct for new members to the community paradigms that not not only shape our perceptions like right not only are they shaping our our mental maps of reality but they're even generating real experiences um so i know that sounds a little crazy but we'll come back to this because there's some pretty profound insight that i actually think as as believers we can validate from this idea of social constructivism and many people hear this and what they think of is the extremes of postmodern relativism they think of this idea that every subculture every people group is constructing the world as they see fit and we are living in this kind of soup or ocean of a plurality of worldviews and who's to say that anyone's is more right uh, than anyone else's so again, that whole sentiment that's probably familiar to most of us in culture, that is, that is a clear abandonment on, on a large scale of correspondence theories of truth, right? If correspondence relies on language and reality being very closely connected and almost two sides of the same coin, in a, in a radical um, postmodern view of social constructivism, the, the language about reality and the reality itself have so separated that they don't even touch anymore. Um, 
and then the last category that I would just mention quickly would would almost relate to what I just said. It would it would be any deflationary theories of truth where truth is just simply functional and there's really no connection to reality. So um, epistemology as a discipline has been completely severed from metaphysics and ontology. We as humans are not capable of perceiving reality as it is. We are only capable of perceiving it as we will it to be. Um, and there's all kinds of, you know, other social implications here. And, um, and I, I'm, I guess I'm making it sound like it's a, a radical offshoot, but I think even this concept of deflationary theory of truth is, is pretty prevalent in a lot of people's sentiments and approach to life. And I think it fits really well in the American pragmatism, right? And this idea of just, um, in many ways, just giving up on the questions about deeper truth and the deeper nature of reality and the meaning of human existence. And um, so in a lot of ways, I guess I would categorize the broad scope American epistemological landscape as a pluralistic pragmatism. It is it is a pragmatism that has almost been deflated by these deflationary ideas of truth. And it leaves people with kind of the sentiment of drink and be merry and don't hurt anyone. Um, and and as, as many cultural commentators have noted, that kind of leads to two options of almost this idolizing of pol- pol- politics and creating politics in into almost a religious um, eschatological hope right where we put all of our all of our longings and dreams and expectations of of a a new progressing society in a political party or a figurehead or it leads to almost this epicureanism of just indulge in pleasure and don't hurt anyone leave everyone alone um which has its own kind of um political presence maybe 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 closest in uh, like the libertarian party, right? Um, so that's my sense of just my take on the broader cultural scope. And and Stan Grenz is stepping into this, and he's highly aware of all these theories and all the nuance that goes much deeper than this. And um, and he is wanting to hold on to uh, metaphysical realism. That's assumed. He believes reality exists. He's not a deflationist. He's not a radical postmodern. Um, but he's wanting to come in and add some some nuance to maybe this overly simplistic approach to knowledge that many evangelical Christians or Christians in general have adopted. Um, so those are theories of correspondence, coherentism, and pragmatism. So he wants to add to those um, theories this phenomenological and social constructivist kind of approach to knowledge. And he's he's more than comfortable acknowledging that our knowledge will never be perfectly objective and finished in this lifetime. That our knowledge of of anything, whether it's our faith in God or our knowledge of other persons in friendship and relationship, our knowledge will always be imperfect, unfinished, and um, and that's okay. We don't need to panic about that. So, diving in, let me reiterate here. I'm just going to read a short section. This is this is Stan's 
fundamental critique of evangelicalism. So um, he criticized evangelicalism's focus on individuality contrasted with sociality, their rationality contrasted with affectivity or your feelings and emotions, your affect, um, objective neutrality contrasted with subjective participation, and universal absolute truth contrasted with conditioned knowledge. So I'll repeat that real quick. He's critical of evangelicalism's individuality over sociality, rationality contrasted with affectivity, objective neutrality with subjective participation, commitment to universal absolute truth contrasted with conditioned knowledge. So what Grenz is concerned about here in that list is um, evangelicalism's adoption of the commitments of modernity. And he's worried that in an age that has abandoned those commitments culturally, which is beyond you know any one of our individuals' control, our culture has just shifted. He's concerned that that Christianity in America is losing its its dynamic spirit transforming impact because it's so committed to this rational, unquestionably certain objectivity that. Um, that actually maybe worked 100 years ago or even 50, 70 years ago. Um, so he's not, he's not demonizing those commitments in their own cultural context. He's just simply trying to sound the horn that the culture has changed and, and there have been some actual positive advances in some of these areas of epistemology. And rather than threatening our Christianity, it actually is the opportunity for renewal. So that's his critique and uh and he and his sense of invitation and optimism right so what was stan advocating in replacement this will be kind of our part two of this lecture and it'll be a little shorter than the first part but stan first thing that i need to kind of lay out there and um, many of you won't have heard of these names, but I encourage you to look them up and explore them on your own if you're interested. But there are three thinkers that really shaped Stan's thinking, and they're all believers, um, uh, a, Luther, a couple Lutherans, and a Roman Catholic, actually. So again, for all the flack and criticism Stan is getting about um, dooming Christianity to postmodern relativism, his largest influences in his thinking and forming as a student, as a PhD student, and in his early career were other theologians within the body of Christ just beyond the traditional boundaries of American evangelicalism. So he's going to Germany and studying under uh, one of the most brilliant thinkers of the 20th century in theology, a guy named Wolfhart Ponnenberg. And he's learning from a uh, a Lutheran professor at Yale named George Lindbeck, and then a Roman Catholic sociologist named Peter Berger. So, again, these are people of faith who who have put their commitment and hope in Jesus. These are not um, secular scientists or philosophers. Um, and I think I'll just say this simply before I dive into those. Grenz's Grenz's primary thing he's trying to get Christians to embrace is what he calls a chastised rationality. It's, it's simply him inviting Christians who are steeped in a, 
a modernistic epistemology to embrace the humanity, humility, and teachability that's inherent in our Christian faith, um, to embrace the mystery and wonder that is required of anyone who's going to follow Jesus. So I'll go person by person here to describe kind of their influence on Stan, and then we'll dive into a list of distinctives that I, I sin, kind of sensed and um, thought marked Stan's epistemology. So first, Wolfhart Ponenberg. Uh, one huge thing he took from Ponenberg was this idea that truth unfolds in time as history plays out, and thus it will be impartial and not absolutely certain until the end times, until es- the eschaton. And we talked yeah, in the last lecture about Stan's distinctive emphasis on eschatology, and hopefully today this this discussion on epistemology and his use of eschatology will explain more so what he meant by eschatology as a distinctive. But for Ponenberg, it was this idea. um, Ponenberg, in many senses, was a true modern. He was um, going beyond simple theories of epistemology of, of correspondence and embracing coherence and pragmatism. And so for Ponenberg, he, he would try and observe the truth of, of doctrines, the truth of the interpretation of various scriptures by observing the history of the church, right? And so really his, Grenz's, we see the fingerprint of Ponenberg in Grenz's distinctive of eschatology. We also see it in his distinctive an emphasis on the heritage of the church um, and the heritage of the Jewish people before the church was even born in the first century. Um, and so there's this, this emphasis on truth always being provisional until the final day. Uh, it's, it's Paul's concept that we see through a veil dimly, right? George Lindbeck, Renz draws a social and participatory understanding of truth from Lindbeck. Lindbeck had this famous little book, um, called The Nature of Doctrine, I think, and Grenz's um, both warmly embraces some parts, and he's also pretty critical of Lindbeck. He feels like Lindbeck doesn't go far enough in his claims about about truth, and kind of maybe runs the risk of relativism. Um, but the key idea that he draws from Lindbeck here is that religions produce religious experience; they're not merely expressions of it. So let me say that again, and then I'll explain it. Religions produce religious experience rather than merely being an expression of it. So, Stan's point here, I remember reading an article where he tells a story of of a friend who was a Roman Catholic and went to a Protestant charismatic church meeting. And this person got prayed over during the meeting and they fell over, right? during prayer. And maybe some of you have had that experience or maybe you've never heard of this happening, but, um, Grenz goes on to his point. He kind of draws out is in conversation with this person, their interpretation of the experience that happened to them was that they were at a prayer meeting and the room was really crowded and hot and they fainted. And this, this friend of his, or I think it was a student, this student had a Roman Catholic religious paradigm, theologically, 
but also had a very modern naturalistic understanding of anatomy and physiology and and imposed that naturalistic worldview on on their read and interpretation of scripture and you know the life of Christianity, how Christianity is to be lived. So Grenz's whole point here is no one has raw experience. We always bring an interpretive framework to an experience to help us make sense of the data, to help us make sense of what happened. If if someone had had that same, there was someone probably at that same meeting who had an ecclesiastical upbringing within Pentecostalism where there's words and language and categories for something like that as a, an act of the Holy Spirit, a move of God. They might even say, oh, it was crazy, I was at this meeting last night and I got slain in the Spirit, which is a linguistic idiom, it's a phrase that a charismatic or a Pentecostal might use to describe an experience of so intensely becoming aware of the presence of God that physiologically your body, your mind, your muscles give out, right? So again, this idea that religions and religious paradigms, they're not just describing what happens, they're actually giving access to specific experiences. And and just psychologically, right? Think of the two people leaving that prayer meeting, the Roman Catholic and the Pentecostal, the Roman Catholic perceived it as simply a naturalistic experience where they fell over and psychologically their experience is going to be, oh, that was kind of embarrassing, right? Whereas the Pentecostal might have a totally different interpretation of the same experience as being an intimate, validating experience of God's love. So so Grenz's point uh, that we'll get into more is that your paradigm of faith in a sense, constructs your reality. This is his, his drawing from social constructivism. It constructs your reality and even the, the very real perception and interpretation you have around experiences. Um, third, Berger, Peter Berger, uh, brilliant thinker. Berger talks about how we as humans experience the world as simple correspondence and simple kind of foundationalism. And almost this objective common sense realism, like statement I made earlier when I'm on the phone with my wife and I say, I am at my office. And that is a simple correspondence statement. It's either true or false. I'm either in my office or I'm not in my office. But for Berger, language objectifies the shared experiences of those who are in the same linguistic community. Let me read that again. Language objectifies the shared experiences of those who are in a linguistic community. And what he means by that is, well, I'll draw an example. When I read earlier that statement from the founding fathers from the Declaration of Independence, if you're an American, you hear that and you immediately kind of shake your fist and in agreement, right? And you say, heck yeah, that's a, that's a undeniable, observable um, truth. But, but the reality is, if you were from a different culture or let alone a different time and place in human history, you might not agree that that's an obvious truth, right? Um, or if you were an American who was a woman or a black man at the time of that statement, you might say that that, that word all is definitely not true, right? So um, his point is that 
we exist in these social enclaves, these kind of sub-communities, whether that's a familial system, a small town you grew up in, or a particular social group within a city that you identify strongly with. And it is your indwelling in that community and the language and the way that community uses language that allows you to function in the world as if it's simple correspondence. And, and again, from the very beginning of this course, one of the problems I think psychologically that, that our culture is experiencing right now is through technology, globalism, we're being exposed, right? It's being, we are constantly rubbing shoulders to a degree never before in human history with people from different social linguistic communities. Um, I, I see this all the time in conversations with people around politics, right? And the why it seems like there's such a wall, a barrier of communication between two people that have are committed to different political value systems. And I think my best guess is that it's tapping into this idea of um, a shared community objectifying someone's perception of reality. So someone who in who is on Facebook and social media, always hearing the same voices and the same people or lives in a community where everyone thinks the same, it is hard for them to imagine that the things they believe to be true are not objectively universally true for all people. And then when they're confronted with people who think differently, they are highly suspicious, they get all of a sudden emotional and reactive to that person and defensive to that person because they feel like this person's challenging, you know, the very basic observable facts of life that they have adopted. So those are three huge people, Pannenberg, Lindbeck, and Berger, that are influencing and shaping Grenz. And then this is my, I'll end with this, this is my list of eight distinctives of how truth functions and how people arrive or come to uh, knowledge of any of anything sort, whether scientific or um, religious or any other category. And Grenz, nowhere in my reading, Grenz doesn't outline these. Um, this is more my attempt to consolidate and summarize the distinctive things I saw him emphasizing. And this list is by no means in any specific order, and it's also not entirely linear. These, these terms in some ways are like like ingredients in a soup that Grenz mixed, right? They're, they're integrated and interdependent on one another. So hopefully that'll become clear by the end of the, the list as I explain it. So the first one for Grenz, truth is participatory. He writes, true theology always moves from head to heart to hand. This is challenging the modern picture of humanity as brains on sticks, right? That humans are not just... Uh, rational, autonomous individuals, but we are, we are people filled with affections and desires, emotions. We have intuitions that are tacit, precognitive, even supracognitive, right? That we often arrive at knowledge of something not through thought and, and words and inquiring, but through indwelling, by through spending time in our bodies, in a place, uh, and, and not necessarily through conscious reflection. 
or let alone academic education, right? So knowledge is fundamentally participatory, intuitional. Second, knowledge is constructed. So again, quoting Grenz, he says, humans structure or construct the world they experience through the concepts they bring to it. So in a sense, he would say we are world builders. And let me read uh, another little quote here. So Grenz writes, The constructive wor constructed world attains for us the character of objectivity in the sense both of seeming to be external to our personal consciousness and of being experienced with others. Thus, foundationalism, correspondence theory, and evangelicalism's common sense epistemology is just a culturally, linguistically designated paradigm that becomes, quote, self-evident only to those who are a part of it and have been a part of it for a while. So, again, I think he's, he's kind of trying to point out... Uh, a simple fact that he's he's not challenging the truth claims that much of evangelical theology makes about God or um, interpretations of scripture. He's simply saying evangelicalism assumes that the things they believe should be universally observable to all people who don't have their same experiences or commitments or beliefs. Um, and Grez is just saying that's not how truth works. Um, so, the difference for Christians, for Grenz, is that this constructed world, far from being just relativism and a bunch of stories that are competing in a pluralistic world, this is where the brilliance of what he's going to do uh, next week in our fifth lecture is explain how the, the Christian constructed worldview or paradigm it has its origin, like the ground of its grammar and, and thought is based in the action and participation of God in humanity and in history. So we'll dive into that more, but for Grenz, this idea that Christianity is constructing a paradigm or constructing a world, um, right? That someone could hear the gospel and then through the hearing of that gospel now start to experience the presence of God and the love of God. And maybe they had had, you know, experiences before they had heard the gospel where they had a sense of God or we could look at other, you know, African traditional religions or Native American religions where maybe there's um, a hint of these truths that at the center of the universe there is this divine creator God who is a social being of love, right? So maybe there were hints of it, but until that, until that narrative is told, the narrative of creation, Abraham, Exodus, the creation of Israel, and then the arrival of a Messiah through Jesus Christ, until that narrative is told and then people themselves in time and space are invited to participate in that story, there is a level of reality, this reality called the love of God, that cannot be experienced. Um, it's a reality that's inaccessible until people have heard the message and believed. And um, this leads right into his third distinctive of truth, that truth is fundamentally narratival, that we are um, narrative animals, in a sense. 
I don't really like the description of us as animals, but this idea that the fundamental logic, the fundamental organizing tool of our brains is story. And we can see this simply by observing other cultures through time and history. The very cognitive, rational um, uh, approach to knowledge that we see in uh, starting in the medieval era with the formation of universities and then culminating in, the, in modernity and even the present age, the information age, right? This is a modern invention. And even in this modern age, when we have access to all this knowledge and all this information, we all could probably still attest to the power of how fundamentally it's stories that help us organize and make sense of all that. Just like each political party in this nation tells a specific story about American history, and a specific story of where they're going to take the country, right? Um, so thus Christians come to, come to know the truth of the gospel as we come to believe this story about Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, who is now the Messiah of all humanity. And then second, connecting back to the first idea of participation, it's not only enough to hear the story, you have to then become a participant in it whether that's through simple practices like the Lord's Supper and baptism or through a lifestyle of what Paul will call life in the Spirit, right? Following Jesus, becoming an apprentice of Jesus. We have to learn to listen to God and obey Him, not just believe that the story is true. Uh, and this leads us fourthly. This is kind of one of the categories I mentioned earlier, but for Gren's, um truth is pragmatic. It's coherent and pragmatic. So he's trying to add this layer of nuance to um, these simple, these simple correspondence theories of truth that um, that truth hangs together within a mosaic and a web and a network of belief. And and he he talks about this is kind of a common idea in some church planning circles these days. But this idea that for a postmodern uh, person, they're more likely to be converted to the experience of participating in the community or the body of Christ before they're converted to Christ. Um, and, and I think that is a very pragmatic, participatory uh, understanding of how truth functions and how truth might penetrate the heart of, of someone who's coming to follow Jesus. All right, and fifth, the, this is one of the biggest ones which is so funny because this is not a postmodern um, idea at all, but it's, it's that truth is fiduciary in its foundation. And here the word fiduciary just means faith. It, it means truth is built on trust. So he, he, in one of his writings, he quotes a famous Scottish theologian named T.F. Torrance. And Torrance writes this. Uh, it's quite true. Torrance says, One of the ironies of recent intellectual history is that just when scientists are increasingly becoming theologians, that by that he means science is having to kind of cope with the embrace of mystery, and um, science is a whole other topic, but in the postmodern age, science has had to acknowledge its own biases and its own, um, its own participatory and faith-based nature and that science itself is not perfectly objective as uh, modernity would have conceived of it as. So I'll read that again. Um, 
Just as scientists are increasingly becoming theologians, many theologians are struggling harder than ever to remain scientists. And for Grenz, this just encapsulates his whole critique of American Christianity, that we now live in a cultural moment where postmodernity has conceded um, that the ground of knowledge is constructed communally through participation. It's built on faith. And Grenz is kind of looking at this going, guys, do you not under- do you not hear this? This is this sounds just like biblical faith, the biblical faith of the Old Testament of Abraham, uh, of the New Testament and the early church and throughout church history. This sounds like St. Augustine uh, saying that you must believe so that you may understand or, or Anselm of Canterbury saying faith seeking understanding. It's, it's this heritage of the church that um, the first step, the first move of knowledge of God is always fiduciary. It's always built on trust and risk and faith. You cannot argue or deduce or induct yourself into this truth. Knowledge of God is fundamentally, Gren says, a personal commitment of confession and faith. That is the foundational starting point. So that that just kind of blows up the foundationalist approach to truth that there is some universal observable inalienable you know right or some obvious thing that all people of all cultures and all times will just look at and say oh wow look there's evidence of god um that that there is no foundational idea that will will move people to the biblical faith of abraham and the early church so Finally, the last three motifs I'll just touch on quickly. These are um, earth distinctives of his epistemology. These are actually built off of the motifs we talked about in Lecture 3. So Grenz's emphasis on the Trinity, community, and eschatology. So I'll just touch briefly on how those shape his uh, epistemology, his concept of truth, and then we'll wrap up for today. So uh, I'll start with communitarian. Um, and again, this is tapping into the social constructivism that Grenz is adopting from Berger and Lindbeck. Um, and, and for Grenz, what is true emerges as a cognitive framework that is a web of beliefs is mediated to an individual by one's community of reference. So a, a person's perception of the world, their personal sense of identity they are constructed and formed and, and nurtured by the community that they identify strongest with. We could all look through our history, and, and at an early age, this was likely our nuclear family, our immediate family, but then it probably began to expand to our, our peer group, our social friend group within a sport or a club we were in at school or maybe a church community um, and I think in many ways, these days, kids are finding these social communities through connections online, through online gaming or, um, you know, YouTube, YouTubers and influencers and, and these adolescents. This is a key part of developmental psychology as humans. We are developing this sense of identity and it's, a, it's an observable documented fact that we are fundamentally drawing that sense of identity and constructing it by looking outside of ourselves to others to affirm it and create it. Um, and, and I think this, 
This insight brings such clarity for us, especially when we hit conflict with others in communication and when we're dealing with people who might be identifying with a different community of reference, right? Um, the sociological term for this is a, the community that mediates a constitutive narrative. It's the community that gives you a fundamental story that helps you make sense of all the other stories. And again, this to some, this might scare them and sound, oh, well, that just dooms us to relativism and a bunch of communities telling different stories. But for Grenz, he says, no, this is, this is the brilliance of and beauty of God that the fundamental place of the church, right, is to be this identity-forming community that helps you make sense of life and the world. It's not the only community you participate in, um, and I know there are sometimes communities that get get off and unhealthy for various reasons. But but in the in the truest sense of the of of the idea, the church is meant to be this this mediary community that that helps nurture and develop identity in the individual. Um, number seven, Grenz advocates for a Trinitarian approach to truth, and this one gets a little. Uh, abstract, but I'll just say it quickly. He, what he means by this is he's advocating for relationality as the foundational ground of being over the Greek concept of substantiality. So, I think I think for many of us, we think of like when when we just say the word objective reality, we think of what is concrete, what we can touch, what we can hold. We think of matter. Um, but for Grenz, I think what is most foundational in all creation is not matter. It is, I guess we could even use the word energy. It's, it's the energy mediated um, within God's Trinitarian love, <laughs> right? This idea that what if, what if re- relationality is more, more foundationally real and true than, than physicality and substantiality than matter? Um, so for Grenz, there's not a clean distinction here between language and reality, uh, in the sense of matter, because both are just mediaries that point to the ultimate reality of God's Trinitarian nature, the social God, this being of community and love from eternity past to eternity future. Um, so that gets kind of deep and mystical and, maybe even getting into a little bit of Greek orthodoxy. Um, so we won't go down that rabbit hole today. But there's a Trinitarian uh, kind of focus in his concept of truth. And then lastly, eschatological. So I'll read this quote. The objectivity set forth in the biblical narrative is the objectivity of the world as God wills it. He calls this eschatological realism. So what he means by this Sounds kind of crazy, but what he means by this is that Christians anticipate the truth of the gospel. We are, as believers, as followers of Jesus, as the people of the Spirit, we are to pull this future reality, what is going to be true about the world, what is going to be true about us, we are to pull that reality into the present. We do not possess it yet fully, right? Um, universally, let alone empirically is this provable to the modern senses. 
And I, I, I think this is one of the most beautiful parts of what Grenz is trying to highlight, that for Christians, we don't, we don't already have truth in a complete fashion. But for Christians, our, our sense of truth is fundamentally prophetic, not objective. It's, it's objective in the future sense, as in we trust that it will one day be made, made true. Um, but it, uh, we were in a convo last night in the discussion group, and um, it was almost this idea that to be eschatological is to be someone who trusts more in the promises of God than your present circumstances. And, and I think in that sense, to be Christian is to be eschatological. It is to be prophetic. It is a truth that points to a reality that will one day be, not a truth that has it yet wholly in the present. So thus Grenz, he believes that the deconstruction of modernity with its cold, calculated, individual, universal, rational understanding of truth has opened up the floodgates for the recovery of the mystery, the wonder, and the participatory risk of faith that God invites humanity into, right? The whole God story is full of, of God initiating relationship with people and calling them into this, this biblical concept of risk and faith. And it's messy and confusing and people doubt sometimes and then God's present with them in their brokenness and weakness. And, and we too, living in the church age now, have been called to follow our rabbi, a first century rabbi named Jesus, who we believe on the basis of faith was killed and rose from the dead. He is no longer dead. And, and now we get invited into this risky, faith-filled adventure of what Paul calls being led by the Spirit or life in the Spirit. And we're getting caught up into the truth of the gospel. We're tasting it, but still longing for the fulfillment and completion of its promises, rather than holding or possessing them fully already. So thus, we are left to... Now, all, all we can do to the world who watches is invite others to come and taste and see for themselves. But we can't objectively prove it to anyone. And it certainly is anything but obvious. It's anything but obvious that a human is... In, is of immeasurable worth and value. It's anything but obvious that, that there is this passion and purpose that God longs to unfold to his people. Um, and if we look at human history again, we see culture after culture that that is not the obvious approach to humanity. And in, in Grenz's best judgment, he's, he's trying to recover the vibrancy of this biblical faith. So it can be renewed again, and and this this gospel of information in the modern age can move to a, a gospel of transformation in the postmodern age, so that humans learn to once again not rely on their own intelligence, their own faculties, their own rationality, their own arguing, but that we as the body of Christ become completely dependent on the revelation of God, not deductive and inductive powers and prowess. So, um, I think in closing, I'll just read this quote from Stan. And he writes, My perspective does not banish the universe to the realm of the unreal or make it less than real. On the contrary, insofar as God's program for the ages is the transformation of this universe in the coming to be of the new heaven and new earth, 
This universe is truly real. Real insofar as it is precisely this universe that God is moving toward its telos, and hence toward the fullness of its reality. However, such judgments arise from the perspective of divine revelation and hence from the Christian faith alone. Although they find echo in the natural sciences as well, they are not readily discernible from some supposedly neutral stance that a human knower might hope to be able to assume. And so Grenz believes that a Christian arrives at theological truth by crossing this epistemological ditch, as it's sometimes called, the ditch or the gap between epistemology and metaphysics, between our knowledge and reality as it is. We cross that ditch by faith, and it is, it is an act and a gift from God, not by appealing to some universal objective truth that we can argue or convince people of. Um, so, that is Stan's concept of truth and community and life in the Spirit, and I know that opens up all kinds of questions, but I hope more than anything it leaves your heart encouraged and in awe of, you know, just entertain this idea for a while. Some of these distinctives I listed. What if, what if those distinctives are true about us? That that truth functions in that way, and that in the brilliance of God's sovereignty, He knows us better than we know ourselves. And so, as as culture ebbs and flows and changes and moves their theories of truth around, we as Christians never have to be afraid from reality being exposed because we believe that that God is more aware of those realities um, than any of us ever could be and that he is sufficient to meet us in any cultural time and place. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.